Welcome to another episode of Complete Developer Podcast, the podcast by coders for coders about all aspects of creating your best life as a developer. I'm Will, the accomplished developer, author, and software architect. And I'm Beach, the journeyman developer sharing my journey in development. Complete Developer Podcast is supported by listeners like you. We are now on Patreon at www.patreon.com slash Complete Developer Podcast. As your system scales, eventually you'll find that your database is the source of all of your problems. Apps are often a lot easier to scale than databases, but eventually you have to deal with the database itself. In this episode, we're going to talk about database sharding, which is a useful method for helping your data access scale. But before we get started, Will, what's been been sharding your data? Is that what you're going to say? I was trying to think of the best way to put it. I I was, I was just thinking, man. You know, when when I wrote that, I was like, man, he's going to have something to say there, and. There's just no no good way it could go. It was it was a matter of picking which one. Yeah, to I say. know it's like a target rich environment. Like you're paralyzed for choice. Right, right, right. Yeah. Uh. So yeah, it's been what three weeks since we recorded. Two weeks. I'm trying to remember. Three weeks ago. Yeah, yeah it's three weeks ago. So I've been doing a lot of. Well, I did a lot of NestJS stuff, then WPF stuff, then Next.js stuff, and now I'm doing uh Dart and Flutter. So I'm all over the map on stuff at work right now, which is good. I'm not bored. So that's that's what I got going. But yeah, while you were gone, I've like I've been just like cramming programming tutorials just as fast as I can go. So yeah, that's about it. How about you? Well, I have been in Europe for the last two and a half weeks, roughly. Yeah, it's it's been fun. I uh, started off uh, in Albania. Uh, helping out the church there. There was a, a men's conference. Got to meet uh, some pretty cool people uh, from the Christian Men's Network. One of them, Pastor Steve Mack from Berlin. He's actually from one of the Carolinas, but he pastors a church in Berlin now and uh, wrote a really cool book that uh, that he gave me a copy of, uh, one of the few copies in the United States. Is that this one? No, that is the book that uh, that was about the con- the men's conference. This one uh, is is by uh, by Pastor Steve Mack, and it was uh, about being home, like anywhere you are. And so, even if you are on a one year visa, making wherever you are home. Ah. So it was it was it was really good. I read it on the the flights to uh, from Albania to Glasgow. And uh, and marked it up quite a bit. Took a lot of notes in that book, so it was really good. But uh, yeah, that was really cool. Uh, spent a lot of time with the tech team at the church and uh, did some photography and some training on on that stuff with them. And got to go and hang out at uh, the um, City Radio Tower in Tirana, Albania, and. Uh, Met the owner of City Radio and a couple of TV stations while I was there. That was really neat. One of the guys at the church does some tech work for them. And so he also has a, a really cool YouTube site. So uh, shout out to uh, to Daniel there. So that was that was really cool. But yeah, it was just, it was a lot of fun. It was a great trip. 
spent a few days in Scotland, made a uh, a pilgrimage to the Robert Burns Cottage and Memorial and Museum, and uh, got to walk across Brigadoon and the old Kirk and just all sorts of places that he wrote about. And so that was that was really cool. Actually, I skipped out on the rest of the tour and stayed there in Alloway. <laughs> Because uh, I asked, like, we only had an hour, and apparently nobody really is that interested in that part of the the tour, and it's just sort of tacked on because you're over, we're over by that. And I was like, that's why I signed up for this tour. Yeah, you're the weird guy. You just got to go do your thing. Yeah, and being on my own on this trip, it was great because, like, I just went up to the tour guide. And I'm like, we only have an hour, and he's like, is that not enough time? I'm like, this is the reason I signed up for this tour. I'm like, the castle was cool, but I've seen castles before. It, wasn't that big a deal. Got some great photos, but I really came here for this. And I told him about like the family connection. He's like, I've never had anyone on my tour who actually had a family connection. Yeah, because they all came to America. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So anyway, that was cool. And then uh, my last day in Europe, I uh, I took a train from London to Paris, which the part, the what surprised me was the part under the English Channel was really short. I mean, of course, we're traveling pretty fast, but like it was mostly outside through the countryside, getting to the channel, like getting there from London and then getting from the channel to Paris. How long is that trip, you know, and the channel or whatever they call it? The whole trip was, let's see, we left at eight and got there at about 1120, which would have been 1020. So 31 miles. Yeah. About two hours. Well, the channel itself is 31 miles. Oh, the channel so, yeah. itself. No, I'm just saying the the trip the whole trip was a little over 2 hours. Yes, and and you know, looking it up on Google, they say that's the equivalent of 169 Eiffel Towers stacked on top of each other because apparently we just really don't want to use metric. <laughs> <laughs> How that many is... libraries of Congress is it? Yeah, yeah. Oh my goodness. Yeah. So How anyway, many giraffe-sized asteroids is it could, like can you get it in that, those units please? Yeah. My goodness. Yeah. So I, I went to, to Paris, hit the highlights. I only had uh, an afternoon, basically, because I, I met Julian, our editor, for for lunch. Uh, he took me to a Bouillon, which is a French type of restaurant, which is really cool because we went in and we said it was just two of us. They sat us at a table for four with two other people uh, that we didn't know. And that is apparently a, a thing in France. And I was like, I love this. This is so awesome. Yeah, I kind of think that may be why, you know, France, like why they have the the amount of protests and stuff is because people are actually able to sit down and talk to each other and talk to people they haven't met before. Oh, it's yeah. It's like the networking there, you know, probably contributes a lot to that. Yeah. Um, but yeah, anyway, it it was it was really cool. Just really enjoyed hanging out with him, uh, getting to know him. Surprisingly similar. Like he's a few years younger than me and we have a lot in common. So we sat and talked for a while, just, you know, getting to know each other. It was fun. Like nice. that was, that was really awesome. Definitely a highlight of the trip was, uh, was getting to have lunch with Julian and like meet in person. Someone we've been working with for, I don't know how long, several years, years now. Yeah. I don't know how many. So like the other day you told me, it's like, oh yeah, you know, we've been doing the podcast like eight years and I'm like, has it been that long? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So uh, speaking of people we've been working with for uh, for a few years. 
Saving money is hard, especially when you go gallivanting all over Europe. Yeah, it is so worth it, man. Lucas Casadas is a fee-only certified financial planner. He owns and runs Level Up Financial Planning virtually out of Fort Collins, Colorado. And just like us at Complete Developer Podcast, he focuses on helping you to not only establish a real plan, but also to take action on that plan so that you can live your best life, so that you can do things like go to Europe. Because investing in financial planning services really comes down to whether or not you can improve your finances. And with the help of Level Up, the compounding impact of making those better financial decisions will easily pay for itself. And if you're like me, end up in Euro trips. Wait, that sounds like a movie. (laughs) Probably is. Level Up also has a unique pricing model that will help you no matter where you are in your financial journey. And best of all, Lucas is a fiduciary for his clients. And that means he's not there to sell you a product, but to help guide you to a better financial situation. And you can catch his podcast, Techie Personal Finance Bootcamp, where he covers financial topics that you probably face. And he interviews other IT professionals who share how they navigated their own careers. And you can learn even more at levelupfinancialplanning.com. So let's start off this episode yeah, with the obvious thing we need to say. Yeah, saying we're talking about sharding with a, with a D, D, not a T, as right. many times as I picked on Will as he was working on this episode. It, it is sort of uh, comical that the two words sound so alike. Well, the, you know, at, at a certain scale, those are your two choices. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah. And you but, really don't want the other one. Yeah. So database sharding is a process of storing a large database across multiple machines because a single machine can only hold and process so much data. Eventually, some systems will scale beyond the ability of that single machine to handle data. In addition, as systems scale, they may also need to split data between machines due to security and location considerations. Database sharding overcomes these problems by splitting the system into smaller chunks. And this allows work to either be done in parallel or only in the location with the relevant data. Yeah, or both in some circumstances as well. Obviously, it matters a lot how you split up your data. For instance, it's unlikely that splitting a customer table based on the customer last name will be as helpful in a large distributed system as it would be to split up customers by location. Uh, You probably also want to have shards that are kind of roughly the same size. The idea behind sharding is to improve performance, especially by way of parallelization. But it's also helpful if it also provides some resilience to outages. So that will also need to be a consideration when you start thinking about sharding. So in this episode, we're going to discuss database sharding and how it's done. And after that, we'll talk about some things that you need to know when optimizing for sharding and alternatives as well. We'll finish up by discussing some situations where sharding is not the best approach. Uh, This content really heavily leans on the excellent AWS guide to sharding that Will found. And you find that link in the show notes. Great. Now I've got to put it in the show notes. Thanks, man. Yeah. Well, you know, copy paste (laughs) is, this is one time a developer gets to copy paste and gets thanked for it. Right. (laughs) Yeah. But like, I, I, you know, I started doing the research and then I found that article and I'm like, man, this like hits everything. 
you know, yeah, I have a question I went there to to answer, like it had the answer. And I'm going, well, crap, you know. Yeah, they they do a good job on their docs. I hey, I'm I'm just proud of you. You actually put the link in the references section of the outline. Way to go, man. That, yeah. that that's gonna help me. I probably will forget about it, but you know. Yeah, you will. That's okay. Uh feel free to message him uh on our uh Slack channel and uh you know, give him some crap if he forgets it. Please do. It'd be it'd be really good for me to um to receive the healing. Yeah, from our, from was, our fan base. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so all right, let's start off. How does sharding work? Yeah, so databases are sharded into partitions. Or Yeah, I kind of don't overly like using that term because there's also partitioning, which is another thing. And there's also hard drive partitions, which is yet another thing <laughs> that it's unfortunate. But each partition shard or node, and we'll probably call them shards for this reason, uh, contains unique rows of information. Each shard will share the original database's schema. And you should note here that this also typically includes lookup tables because those are going to have to be duplicated across the shards for things like foreign key constraints and and that sort of stuff. Since you mentioned it, why don't we go into the difference between sharding and partitioning really briefly? Well, it's it's basically the difference of do I have all of the data in this database or do I you know am I, am I splitting the load? Am I duplicating? data or my, you know, or how am I splitting tables? Um, yeah. And, and what a shard is, is you have separate databases, whereas, you know, the partitions, you know, if you're partitioning a database, uh, you might have one table on one drive and another table or another part of that table on a different drive. Yeah. So that you're using okay. different physical hardware. So like, it's, it's, it's one of those things that scales up. So, yeah, and we'll get into that here in a minute. But there's a reason I wanted to clarify and be really careful about the language. Yeah. Which is why we, we're using a word like sharding to talk about splitting a database, because we would not be using a word like that if we had a better choice, because you saw just how mature we just were. Well, I'm hoping that that gets edited out. Yeah. But, you know. Well, okay, but you probably can project, <laughs> even if it does get edited out. So let's be honest. <laughs> Shards are identified by a shard key to determine which partition receives a given record. Now, typically, these keys come from an existing column or a new column is generated, usually from existing data. Right. And, and you can think about this as being somewhat similar in some characteristics to the sort of things you look at for a natural key. Or a foreign key, except it's not, there's not uniqueness. It's just, hey, this kind of buckets this thing in this group, you know, is, is the better way to think about it. Sharding also operates on a shared nothing architecture. That is, each shard is unaware of and independent of other shards, and it operates on its own. Only the shard that, or shards that contain the data that you need will process your request in parallel. So like if you had, you know, if you had a shard for the Southeast and you had a shard for the Northeast and, you know, you had shards for other parts of the country, but, you know, maybe you're like, hey, I want to get the, you know, everything east of Mississippi, I want to break it down for some sales region. Well, you might hit two shards for that query and it's going to execute in parallel on those two. Okay, I see what you're saying. Yeah. Yeah. Now, this also means that a software layer will need to sit on top of the shards to coordinate that data access. Yep. And do you know who's, and if your database server does not do that for you, do you know who's writing it? You are. 
Yeah. Either you are or you find out how to dodge <laughs> because somebody's writing it. It's, it's not going to be as clean and fun as you probably think it is because what a happens if you consultant. have a partial failure? Yeah. So, and we're not going to go crazy into getting into that, but there, there are some considerations there. Yeah. So now let's talk about some common sharding methods. Yeah. So the first one is range-based sharding. When you do range-based sharding, you split database rows on a range of values. So a good example of this might be splitting a customer table based on the first letter of a customer's last name. Don't actually do this more than likely, but because it's not useful and your distribution's uneven and there's lots of other problems with it, but people can reason about this. Yeah. As soon as you said that, I was like, why would you do that? And yeah, then you're like, okay, it's a, it's a thought experiment. This is what you do for Acme Corp when you're showing how to shard a database in a YouTube tutorial. Yeah. That yeah. leaks connections because you don't do everything else right. Yeah. So just for example. Okay. So this is um, Stack Overflow code is what I'm hearing. Uh, yeah. I mean, obviously now real production, you wouldn't do this, but this is just for the, the purposes of, of explanation. Now, when persisting a record, the system would look at the customer's name to figure out which shard gets the record. On the same note, during lookups by last name, the system will reverse this process to find the record. A search that doesn't contain the last name would likely be executed across all shards. Right, which obviously that puts a lot of load on the system that you probably don't want because uh, this is a, a thing that you are doing to get rid of load or to, uh, you know, to limit it. So you're probably going to be looking at something like Elasticsearch and not doing this crap on your database at that point. But you know, that does kind of bring up a point, right? Like if you don't have a thing that makes the shard key, how do you know which one to execute it on? And the answer is, well, you, know, you either look at other ambient data to try to figure that out, or you just run it on all of them. So th this is a very, very serious limit that you're going to run into if you're not careful. You know, and there's another little bit of fun because unless you have a fairly even distribution between those buckets, so like last names, for instance, you know, in the U.S., you, there's like an actual breakdown online. I actually found this. I'd have to go find it again. But, you know, there's certain characters that are very, very common as the start of a last name and certain characters that are just not. Like you don't see a lot of U's for a last name. Huh. Right. I can think of two. Yeah. Off the top of my head, but. Of all the people I know. That's How many S's can you think of besides every Smith that you know? It, excluding the Smiths? <laughs> no, it, it, you know, uh, you know, there's, they're in the mix too, right? So that yeah. if, if it was sharded improperly, most of the load's still going to one place. So you really haven't gotten rid of the problem. You've maybe put it off, but mm -hmm. you added a whole bunch of work when you have to remediate it next time. Yeah, that makes sense. Now, it is easier to, to reason about this which is, is the reason people go this way and why we're explaining it this way is because of that. Now, the next common method is hashed sharding. Hash sharding assigns a shared key to each row by using a hash function. And the hashed value is then used to look up the shard. Right, but shard key, not shared key. You've been reading too much encryption stuff. <laughs> I did, yeah. yes. But it's all good. Just to get, you know, go ahead and say that. Yeah, so in this case with hashed sharding, when you're persisting or retrieving a record, the hash function would be run to figure out which shard to run it against. So in this case, you might do that based on last name. And then you've got a, you basically have an algorithm that evenly distributes the hash 
And the way that you guarantee that is you find a mathematician that has actually worked this crap out. And then they'll tell you on, you know, it, it'll be on the 10, basically. Like, you're not going to write this code yourself. You're going to use some known hashing algorithm. Because you, you're going to also want to avoid things like collisions and that sort of stuff in some cases. Well, say that. Actually, you do want collisions because that's how you group how you group them. But you're probably still not writing this yourself because it is hard to mathematically prove that the output of a hash function is going to be evenly distributed within a set of data that you don't really control and that is continually adding more. Reminds me of a conversation that I, I overheard on the train to Edinburgh the other day. This two, I'm pretty sure they were students. We're talking about group theory. Like they're like math masters or PhD students. I, I don't know at what level, but yeah. And I was just like sitting there pretending to read a book, listening to their conversation going, I understand about every third word they're saying. This is interesting. Yeah. And not because it's in a foreign language. Be- well, <laughs> well, unless you count math a foreign language. Uh, but yeah. Scottish. <laughs> Oh, no, no. Neither one of them were Scottish. Oh. Were they British? No. One was. One was American. Ah. Or Canadian. It's kind of hard to tell sometimes, especially when you've been around, like, over there so long. Like, it... it, No offense to the Canadians, but we do kind of all sound similar. Yeah. You just gotta, gotta, like, count the apologies per minute. (laughs) You know, because they're, like, politer. (laughs) That is true. That is very true. It's substantially so. You could probably, like, That'd be your heuristic. You're just like, oh, they're nice. They must be Canadian. Yeah, because if fair. they were, if they were like superficially nice, they'd be Southern. <laughs> yeah, saccharine sweet. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Sorry. Okay, we are way off topic. <laughs> yes, we are. <laughs> so back to hashed sharding. The downside is that it's harder to reason about this setup uh, because it doesn't separate rows based on the meaning of the information. Uh, This can make it challenging to think about where a record will go or what to do when you want to add more shards. Like, how do you create new shards? Right, because now you got to go, okay, I got to do a different algorithm and then rerun all the crap. And like, how many shards does this overlap with? Oh, wait, it's going to overlap with all of them potentially because I'm trying to do something to get a, like... Yeah, no, if you... Oh, yeah. You'd have to like redo the whole database if you're. Because uh-huh. you're... I was like, you could use the same algorithm, just pass in like different number of shards, but then you'd have to like reset the whole database to do that. You couldn't just like shard a shard. Yeah. Well, I mean, I guess you could probably. Or or you have Yo a secondary dog, shard. Like shard. So we sharded your shard. Yeah. Yo, dog. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, I feel like this is where you get a promotion at another company. <laughs> it's like. <laughs> You know, honestly, by the time you're at the point where you're probably doing that, you should be at a revenue point where you can actually look at this problem, you know, in, yeah. in a better way. That's true. Yeah. And it does have the advantage of more evenly distributing the rows between the shards. So you should be able to vertically scale the shards for some time if you started out with enough of them before you start having to reshuffle. Yeah. Now, another... Another common sharding method is directory sharding. So what directory sharding does is it uses a lookup table to match database information to the corresponding shard. So for instance, um, if you have a nationwide you know, company, 
actually the company I work for right now, uh, initially the databases were, they were sharded by location, like too much. So it was like a major data project to get it all together because it wasn't a real sharding algorithm. It's just everybody had their own copy of the system. Yeah. <laughs> and that's fine, right? That's what happens when a company grows and, you know, there's reasons, there's historical reasons and it's all in one now. But you might have a, a lookup that says, hey, it's not necessarily geofenced. It's more like, hey, which market is this associated with? So like you might have one market that's, that's based around a particular airport. So it's not like, okay, yeah, you know, city of Nashville, sure. There's, there's one real airport and then there's a couple of smaller ones that probably aren't relevant for you. Whereas there are cities like Dallas where you've got two airports potentially in the mix or, you know, there's Dallas, Fort Worth and all that. So you might have kind of a different identifier that's, that's sort of like a proxy for geo, but it's not really geo. It's just like, Hey, here's the bucket we put them in for our company and it's arbitrary. And so that's what you're doing here. Okay. I'm, I'm just like slowly wrapping my brain around what you just said. Yeah. Cause we're going to talk about geo here in a, in a minute. Yeah. Yeah. Still comprehending what you just said. It's, 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 it's kind of thick there. And I skimmed through this on my phone on a train. So I didn't really go in depth and I haven't done a lot of sharding. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't think, uh, I don't think most of us have, right? Like, yeah. Especially with with all the cloud stuff now, there's a lot of things that are built into platforms, or we structure things differently. But you're still going to see this. But you know, basically, when an application needs to interact with the data, it will first look up the shard based on the table. Which, by the way, that also means that table has to live somewhere. Yeah. So, is it in your database? Maybe. Like, how is that going to be structured? You're going to have to think about that. But but it's going to have to do the lookup there first, and any query that involves that field or involves, you know, where it can go to that field, then you're going to, you're going to hit that table to figure out which shard. Otherwise you're probably going to have to hit all of them. Okay. I'm following here. So this has the advantage of being very flexible as well as easily discoverable by developers because you've got that table. Like now, now I'm starting to like, it's starting to click. Like I just had to like chew on it for a moment. Yeah. It also has the advantage or the disadvantage of being very flexible as well as dis- by being discoverable by developers because what we're, what are we going to do? That's going to be a shortcut. Oh, well, I'll just add another thing to this table and we'll just spin up another database, right? That may or may not be the ideal thing is having developers decide to add infrastructure that costs money month over month. So just understand that that, that plus can be a minus real fast. And it can get hairy quickly too if that table ends up with incorrect data in it or if you need to like split a shard or like, you know, move a chunk of records out of two different shards to make a new one, depending on, you know, what you're structuring on, that's that's entirely possible, right? So think like electoral districts and all of a sudden, oh, well, <laughs> Congress redrew the map again, you know, because that's what they that's what they do in their off hours. And we've got to, you know, we've got to shift this chunk of people around. And that's probably not going to be a good, you know, it's not going to be geo sharding. It's going to be some made up crap. Yeah, rarely ever it is actual geo when it comes to congressional districts. I have my thoughts on that that I'll keep to myself to avoid getting into politics. Yeah. Well, it's a way to control things. In lots of ways. That's where I was going. uh, Yeah. Yeah. So... Now on to what Will hinted at earlier, 
And what got me a little confused with uh, where we were is geo sharding. Right. And that is going to actually store information based upon geographical location. So, you know, this is Latin long versus it's something more ephemeral, like a market that may be a little fuzzy at the edges. It's like, no, it's within these, this geofence that goes to this database, which obviously means you have to have that data and it has to be fairly static, uh, you know, as well. You know, so you might, you know, you might split based, uh, you know, based on country that may be your geofence, you know, and you, you figure out the position, you figure out which country it's a part of. Obviously, that is not as static as a lot of people would like over time. So you do have to, you know, consider that, um, especially in certain regions of the world. There, there are borders on this planet that are drawn in different places by different countries. So a great example of that is, you know, there, there's been some, what, India and Pakistan have had problems. Obviously, there's Russia and Ukraine right now. There's Yemen and Saudi Arabia. And, and those borders shift a little bit. And so if you've got stuff around the edges, you're going to have to bear in mind that you may want to be able to move things from one shard to another if there is business logic associated with that too. Right? Because bear in mind, a lot of people have got business logic in their database. Which they shouldn't, but, you know, can't always avoid it. Yeah, sometimes it's got to be close to the data because it just touches a lot of data. And you don't want to transmit that over a wire for processing. So, yeah, just bear that in mind that that is probably something you will see. Now, this approach also allows you to locate shards closer to where their data will be used. Right. Which, you know, that that cuts out a lot of, you know, like your data center egress charges. If you're moving data between data centers, there's a cost, whereas a lot of times in the data center, it's either lower cost or no cost. Again, you're going to also have to locate your front end code and everything that's, that's talking to that system over there too, right? Like you can't just go, oh, we're going to put everything in the New York data center, then we're going to distribute the databases. That's not a financial decision. But but there's ways you can kind of play with this stuff a little bit. And, and that can really save you a lot of money. And it can also really speed up the app. Uh, and potentially, if you've got SEO considerations in the mix, that's also going to bump up like your Google ranking and those kind of things because of the speed. And this this approach is really advantageous if your data tends to be geographically segmented and or you access it in a geographically segmented manner for whatever reason. And and honestly, a, a large percentage of data really is this way because that's how we, you know, that's how humans organize ourselves. We organize, you know, in, in space, not like space space, but like, you know, three-dimensional geographic space, like walking around. Yeah, just don't look at my office. It's not very organized right now. Uh, yeah, I was looking at that. I've been, well, I, I've cleaned out my storage room and I've been going through stuff. And like, yeah, I was saying, yeah, I'm looking at your office now. It looks like you're going through stuff. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I've been <laughs> like, like, it looks like I'm moving in. Trauma. <laughs> oh, funny, funny. Yeah. No, I've just been been sorting and going like, you know what? I just had this sitting in storage and I don't even have a CD player anymore. So I need to just get rid of these CDs, stuff like that. But yeah. Now, the downside to geo sharding is what happens when data needs to move or when the data has very uneven distribution. Uh, it also adds complexity when data needs to cross a boundary. You know, for example, this would work 
very, very poorly for a social network. Yeah, or a logistics system. Yeah. Which I'm aware of some that are like looking at this kind of stuff now and going, how are we going to split the system between, you know, potentially multiple countries, but even just, you know, one country, just the U.S.? That's, you know, that, that is a very nasty problem. And I have a feeling I'm going to be in the middle of that one. But yeah. So let's talk a little bit about optimizing sharding and keys. Now that we've kind of talked about some of the algorithms that you might commonly use. And, and there's, there's some terms that we need to kind of get into here. So the first one is cardinality. And cardinality describes the possible values of a shard key. Uh, it determines the maximum number of shards. So, for instance, if a developer uses the first character of the last name, only in English, mind you, then the maximum number of shards would be 26, right? Yeah. That's the cardinality of that particular shard key. I was just thinking about it because... How many, for, it's how many cardinals can the, popes, can the Pope have? <laughs> well, I was, I was just thinking about, like, when you say that in English, like, here's a, a tricky thing for you. There's 36 letters in the... Uh, Albanian alphabet and several of them are just like double character le- letters. Yeah. Well, I was thinking so, like Mac in, yeah. in English, right? There's enough McGregor's and McDonald's and yeah. Yeah. Or O, you know, mm-hmm. uh, yeah. So it's, yeah, it's not, that's not a perfect thing, but they probably would still just go well, just put them in that bucket and do a, you know, do a quick ASCII, you know, slice and dice on it. Frequency is the probability of storing specific information in a particular shard. Uh, For instance, if you were to use a person's age as a shard key, this is not a good idea since, you know, that tends to change over time. It changes till it stops changing and then you're probably not tracking them anymore. Depending. I mean, yeah, you you may work. Well, going back to the voter registration example. (laughs) Wow, I thought we were going to avoid politics. (laughs) Anyway, you're using age as a shard key for a system that tracks CrossFit gym memberships. My goodness, dude. Uh, Then most recent records might be in the shards handling 20 to 40-year-olds. Right. You're probably not going to have, you know, anybody in the group 1 to 10. For instance, you're probably not going to have anybody in the group 80 to 90. You never know. There's always that one crazy dude, right? I mean, I know I know some pretty spry 80-year-olds. Yeah, but it's pretty intense, right? So, you know, more than likely, you're going to have a clustering effect no. there and a statistical distribution that does not work well for this. Rod Stewart, I bet he does CrossFit. He's like in his 90s and he's like running around the stage. Sorry, I took my mom for her birthday and like I was just amazed at how like mobile the man was. At his age. So anyway, way off topic. Yeah. So now we will talk about monotonic change. That is the rate of change of a shard key. So a monotonically increasing or decreasing key will result in unbalanced shards. So for instance, if you sharded a database based on how many purchases a customer had made over time, more of your customers are going to cluster in the final shard. Right. And then eventually you're going to be like, oh, crap, I got to add another shard for, you know, to move some of these people. Does that kind of make a little bit of sense? I know like the monotonic thing is, it's just something to be aware of. Like, does this thing change? How, what's the rate of change? Am I, am I putting it to more volatile data? 
So you could almost look at it as a volatile. Monotonic. That's just a fun word to say. Guys, you should say that word, monotonic. It is a fun word to say. But but say it while changing your voice up and down so that you don't sound monotone because that's something else. So now we'll talk about some alternatives to sharding. And first is vertical scaling. Basically, you add more resources to whatever machine is handling your database. Uh, It's simple and should probably be done until it gets too expensive or difficult to scale much further. Yeah. And and by the way, don't like don't go to the red line on this, you know, because like the sharding thing is going to take a minute. And so like if you're already in trouble, it's too late. That said, don't start looking at sharding when you're like, oh, I'm on a I'm on a small, you know, database instance on Azure, right? Okay, well, yeah. they, yeah, it's small because there's mediums and larges. You yeah. Know, go, go in that direction before you start because it's, it's going to take a lot of time and it's developer time for this is not going to be cheap. Um, and a lot of times when you, when you plan ahead and you go, okay, I'm going to do this thing for this, this thing I can foresee in five years, well, everything changes in five years. In five years from now, maybe the app doesn't have the same load. Maybe it's gone. Maybe, you know, you completely restructured to some other thing where the database is really not your problem anymore. Or you, you picked a different database and now a different database is your problem. Oh, no, that happens. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's, it's, it's one of those deals where like the, the common thing in all your dysfunctional relationships is you. <laughs> and that way with a lot of dev shops and database servers, unfortunately. So yeah, vertical scaling, that's, that's probably what you want to do for a while. Another option is replication. So this is just essentially make a copy of the database and store the data the same across different computers. And a lot of database systems will allow you to do this. So you can go, hey, I've got, you know, I've got four different databases and I'm doing some kind of load balancing type scenario with them. Now, that also means your writes are more expensive because they got to go into four systems and you got to deal with what happens if it fails in one. Yeah. So you are going to have to think about those kind of things. But that's still... Is better. I could see acid compliance being tricky with that. Well, it's acid compliance per database. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And then on the, or, you know, it's like acid and then it's, it's acid for one database to get the data in and it's base for the others. That's what I was thinking. Like if you, you, you like, yeah, I've seen be- some stuff that I didn't like. I'll just say that. But you, you know, you do have built in replication in a lot of these platforms and they handle it for you. And then you've got partitioning. And this is the process of splitting a database table into multiple groups. Horizontal partition splits the table by rows, whereas vertical splits it by columns. Um, This is done on the same computer, but may use different storage devices. And what it does is allows you to get more out of one single machine. Yeah, so, um, you know, and, and explaining the vertical and horizontal to developers who are not really database oriented, you can think of a horizontal split, you know, you're splitting by rows. This is like the scaled down version of sharding a system. Whereas a vertical split is like the scaled down version of a microservice split. That's a really good way of putting it. Like I, I visualized it using like a, yeah, a using Excel. Kind of, yeah, yeah. I literally visualized it using Excel and I'm like, okay, yeah, I can see that makes perfect sense. Just like open up a new sheet. Like if you think about a partition as a new sheet, Right. Or, you know, but when you say vertical or horizontal, they're like, what does that mean? Does that mean that's the line or does that mean that's the cells? Because like they're 
these are vertical and this is, you know, like people get confused on that. Whereas if you explain it the other way, it's like, hey, but it's based on the functionality, the functional way you're splitting it. Sometimes that helps people. So I didn't get confused by that. It made sense. The rows are horizontal. And yeah, you didn't and I didn't because we're, we're in and out of database. Columns are there's there's vertical. people that aren't. So I don't know. I just know how tables work. I don't know. Sorry. It just like I, I've used some Excel spreadsheets. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I've used Excel spreadsheets for uh, for so long, even before I got into development that I just like I'm like, oh, yeah, I visualized that so right. easily. But if you are so like if you are horizontally splitting a sheet, right? You're splitting it along the vertical axis by a horizontal line, <laughs> which is where people get, get their brain messed up. So like, I was like, okay, let's just explain this as a, based on the intent versus spatial. I don't, I, I would never have thought that way. Yeah. I, I know a dude who thinks that way. That's why I'm saying it. Yeah. It just seems like you're overcomplicating it. And I'm just yeah. like, I, I think he is too, but that's the way he understands these things. Yeah. So yeah. just, yeah, if you explain it by the intent, maybe that that gets people further. And and realistically, that is what you're going to be doing, right? When you're partitioning a table and you're saying, hey, these columns go over here. Well, that's probably a separate use case. You don't want to go, oh, you know, I'm, I'm doing this one query and it's split between these two partitions because then now you're activating both, you know, physical storage devices and you're not really saving yourself much. So, yeah. So let's talk about major problems in sharding. Uh, and the first one of these is hotspots. And we alluded to this earlier, but hotspots can occur because of an unbalanced distribution of data. Uh, this can mean that one machine is handling an inordinate amount of system load while the load is lighter on other machines. So you're overpaying for some machines and you are under provisioned for the one machine that's overloaded. So you, you didn't split the load well, essentially, is what happened. And now you're not getting all the benefit that you should. Now, whether this kills your app or not is a whole other thing. But it may, it may point to a problem that could, could come later. This is the way I think about it. Next is operational complexity. Instead of managing a single database, a sharded system will require the maintenance of multiple databases. It will likely also require additional work to keep things, you know, common, uh, such as the schema and various lookup tables in sync. Uh, analytics are going to be a lot harder as well. Yeah, you got some some complexity there. Yeah, some of those things this. like analytics probably shouldn't be in your OLTP database anyway, but everybody does it. Everybody does it until they realize they have to stop. You're also going to run into more infrastructure costs. The database in a lot of cases, is the most expensive part of the system as far as just, you know, cost per CPU cycle just because of the, the software that's on there. Maybe it's not as bad with some of the open source ones, but like SQL Server, you know, Oracle, yeah, you're going to get a higher cost point uh, for that. And when you shard the system, you're going to stand up several databases. And while, you know, each of them is going to be smaller than the original, it's going to be larger than their fraction would be. So your total gets bigger, if that makes sense. Because you're going you're gonna to want to move that stuff and have headroom uh, after you move it. Because if you don't, you're gonna, when you find something wrong that you did and you have to do this expensive query and you're already close to your limit, it's going to be bad. The last one is application complexity. 
Applications are also going to have to deal with the implications of sharding, unless the database management system handles it transparently. And we'll just say that transparently is kind of up to interpretation where this is concerned. Right. And especially with like geo sharding, where you're in different data centers, there is going to be a difference in performance, you know, calling across. And so, and potentially reliability. And so you're going to have to think about those things when you're building screens. Like, what do I do if two out of the three shards I'm calling work and the other one doesn't? And you're going to also have to find out some way of, of alerting the team that that happened too. So let's also talk about why and when you shouldn't shard. And the first one is, is you still have plenty of headroom to scale vertically and or use other services to improve performance with less impact. So this would be stuff like I can, I can stand up a Redis server and I can cache. You know, I could get a larger SQL instance. I can, you know, use a CDN for some of the stuff. Next, you are using your OLTP system for analytics. This adds a lot of load to most systems and it's just easier to split off elsewhere. Uh, and if you decide to shard later, you're going to still need to do this anyway. Right, because you don't want them running the analytics across multiple databases, right? Because whoever's running that analytics that's hitting all the databases, I mean, you, you got to think about your organizational pyramid, right? It's the dude at the top that's hitting all your servers. And, and so you really you don't want it to be slow for them and you don't want them to be able to knock the system down. Uh, another case when you probably shouldn't shard, I'm not going to say always, but uh, if your main issue is read performance, this tends to indicate that you should probably use caching and or database replicas without without having to do a heavy rewrite. Yeah. Also, if a lot of applications directly access your database, if that's the case and you shard, you'll be dealing with sharding issues in every single one of them, just about. Yeah. And it's not going to be the same code, more than likely. Yeah. Because there's a reason you're doing that and it's probably to get around you know, like use multiple languages or something like that. And, oh, we're just going to, we're going to put logic in the database so we don't have to rewrite it in different apps. You'll see this in a lot of older companies that those, those systems are still around. I've written them. It's the way it is. Another case when you shouldn't shard is when your database still has a small working set. So the working set is the amount of memory required for frequently accessed data. So it's basically a cache kind of of, you know, what your, what the database is, frequently hitting so that it keeps it hot in memory instead of having to read it off the disk over and over again. If it's a small working set, you may get more bang for your buck by just increasing that first. You know, add more add more RAM, you know, bigger machine, just step up. It's a, it's a type of vertical scaling. Next, you don't want to shard if you have poor discipline around versioning of database objects. You can get by with a lot of crap in a single system that will be a disaster in a sharded one. And this is this is really one of the big ones for that. Yeah. Yeah. Never make one thing into many when you can't handle one thing. Yeah. You know, that that's just a you know basic life lesson that you need to learn in general. Um yeah, it, I've I've seen this one hurt people plenty of times. So like if you if you deploy an index and you you put it out to three of your shards and there's a fourth shard and you know that one starts falling over in six months, are you gonna be able to figure that out? Another thing that is, you know, why you shouldn't probably shard right now is when you're already getting negative feedback about your team's productivity. 
sharding a good system is going to slow it down and it's going to slow the team down. And if you shard a bad one, it will tank it. Like you really have to deal with the organizational issues that are putting you in that political situation before you ask for more money for sharding, even if you need it right now. Um, And that's why you want to be ahead of these things before, you know, like you don't want to hit the wall and then find out that you got to fix it when you're already politically in the stuff. And finally, you shouldn't shard if you think agile fits perfectly in every situation. This is an area where a big design upfront is required. You have to do that to prevent large amounts of expenditure and very expensive reworks. This is not something that can quickly and easily be redone. If your team is overly hung up on agile or bad at it, uh, yeah, this will be a failed project. And, and that's the thing. Like, it, it's something I've noticed the, the lower or closer to the metal you get, the more planning you need up front. Like your, your front end code, like the way that your app, your, your interface and the way that your app looks and feels, that can be adjusted pretty quickly. Your API, not as quickly, but it can be done. Uh, but when you get to the database, that's... Yeah, you're starting to get to DevOps. Yeah. And, you know, the other thing too is the the expense. So like, you know, if you're wrong on the API thing, you get errors and you can catch it. If you're wrong on this, you've potentially spun up another server, you've moved data, you've spent weeks. I, I'm not saying you can't do it with Agile. I'm saying most shops can't. And I will, I will loudly assert that one because most, most shops are very dysfunctional with Agile. And this is not a place to take that dysfunctionality because you will get caught. So guys, Database sharding can be a very useful tool for making your application more resilient to load. However, it is complex and you really need to think it through carefully if you're considering using it in your environment. There are several different ways to do it with different advantages and disadvantages, and these will need to be thoroughly considered before you start. Plus, sharding is actually a fairly drastic fix, and it requires a lot of support and extra work for the remaining lifetime of your application. It's not some you know, quick fix and the problem's gone. It's there forever. Uh, This means that you really shouldn't consider it until most other options have been exhausted and then you should plan. And that's pretty much all we've got. If you have a question or comment, please email us at neckbeards at completedeveloperpodcast.com. Our theme music is an excerpt from Standby for Titanfall by Pure Bells, available on SoundCloud and licensed through Creative Commons. For references, show notes, and extra tips and insights, be sure to check out the website at completedeveloperpodcast.com. Help us make the show possible by supporting us on Patreon at patreon.com slash completedeveloperpodcast. You'll get extras, including a weekly aftercast where we discuss the topic of the week and bonus material with some of our patrons. You can also follow us on Twitter at CompleteDevPod, like our page on Facebook, and follow us on Instagram to keep up with news about the show. Join the conversation anytime via Slack by signing up at slack.completedevelopernetwork.com. Thanks for listening. See you next time.